Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Welcome to the Thanksgiving edition of our little show. I hope you are all getting a chance to step away from the office for a few days and relax. I say that because I think things are going to get a little crazy in the tax world when we all return to work. I say that because, well, we had an election, folks. And with that midterm election mostly behind us, now comes the end of the year rush. As we discussed in our last episode, Congress has some must-do work this December, at a minimum, funding the government beyond the current funding expiration of December 16th. In addition to that, the White House has made a pitch to raise the debt limit this December in an attempt to diffuse a tricky situation that might otherwise occur next year. And of course, last but not least, we have the tax extenders. Now, we talked about tax extenders in our last episode, but many of you have emailed and asked if the midterm election results have changed our outlook and the dynamics for the lame duck. That's an excellent question, and it's the one we will discuss today. To help me explore this topic, we've got our regulars, Jen Acuna and Tom Stout with us. Welcome, guys. Let me start with a question for both of you. For you first, Jen, we're going to turn to extenders and tax in a second here. But first, let's just talk about the midterms. It's kind of hard to ignore. What surprised you most about the midterm outcomes? What surprised me most was the House in particular and just the sheer volume of unresolved districts by the end of last week. We still have, as of yesterday, four outstanding districts where we have no idea who's winning and most of the vote isn't even in. So that really surprised me. A lot of the projected Republican wins or pickups didn't really materialize. And if they did, it was not by big margins. They eked out victories in a lot of those districts. So I found that to be really surprising. I think a lot of people would agree with you. I mean, it certainly upended conventional wisdom that this was going to be a big win for Republicans. That's absolutely right. All right, Tom, what about you? What surprised you? Anything? I was thinking, I, I don't know why Jen is so surprised about these outstanding districts. <laughs> They're all in our home state of California, which is notoriously hey, late. you know I love California. <laughs> They're notoriously late in getting their votes in. We all know about that. I did not find the election as surprising as some. There are three main reasons, I think, why people were kind of surprised at the result, surprised that the party in power, the Democrats, didn't do worse. The president's approval rating was in the low 40s, not very good. The inflation rate is historically high, running around 8%. And historically, the party in power loses a lot of seats in midterm elections. The average over the last four decades or so has been about 25 seats. It's sort of set up conventionally to look like a big loss for the Democrats. But looking at that historical performance in midterms, usually that's following a presidential election in which the party in power has picked up a lot of marginal seats on the president's coattails. And this time around in 2020, the Democrats actually lost 14 seats in the House. So they didn't have as much to lose as ordinarily you would see in a midterm election. They'd lost all those marginal seats that they picked up in 2018. So they were not set up to lose as big as you would normally think. The inflation rate obviously is very high, but the economy overall isn't doing that badly. And it's not like there's a clear policy choice. It's not like one party's pro-inflation and one's anti-inflation and no clear solution either that either party was offering. So it probably wasn't as big an issue as it might have been, although I think it probably suppressed turnout, which was, I think, about 4% lower than the last midterm election. And then finally, the president's approval rating was low, 
But approval polls are kind of strange things. One politician once said, don't compare me with the almighty, compare me with the alternative. Elections are not approval polls, they're preference polls. And sometimes disgruntlement about the party in power doesn't necessarily translate into voting for the other party. So it doesn't change things as much as you might think. So instead of losing 20 or 30 seats, it looks like the Democrats are going to lose in the House six to eight seats. Senate's sort of a different story there. It looks basically like everything is held with one seat changing at this point, Pennsylvania. So pretty much status quo. So overall, I didn't find it all that surprising, but obviously a lot of people did. Well, to your credit, Tom, you made all those points pretty consistently throughout the fall, and many of them turned out exactly to be correct. Anything that I found surprising, first of all, the fact that the Republicans did flip the House itself was not a surprise. By perhaps the narrowest of margins, maybe a little bit of a surprise. But the thing that surprised me the most is if you look at how the Republicans flipped the House, they did it with seats from New York, not New York State, metropolitan New York City, and seats in California. So if you had going into this, Republicans would flip the House by the narrowest of margins by winning seats in Metro New York and in California, well, you know, you win. The other thing that surprised me, to your point, Tom, about the Biden disapproval, historically, as you say, these elections are very hard, especially first-term, midterms on the president's party. In 2010, voters who somewhat disapproved of then-President Obama voted for Republicans by 40 percentage points. In 2018, voters who somewhat disapproved of then-President Trump voted for Republicans by 30 percentage points. This year, voters who somewhat disapproved of Joe Biden voted for Democrats 49 to 45. So there you go. I mean, that completely bucked the trend and it's going to be fascinating. I think people are going to try and examine and do postmortems on this election for quite some time to come. Okay, I guess we should move on to tax. Why not? This is a tax podcast after all. So let's talk lame duck. Tom, I'm going to start with you. Okay, there's a lot of difference of opinion here in Washington as to whether or not we are going to get a tax bill tax extenders in December. Let's try and understand why there's such a big difference of opinion. Starting with you, Tom, give me three reasons why Congress will not do tax extenders this December. Uh, I'm limited to three. <laughs> the three best, let's say that. <laughs> okay, let's do it that way. Well, let's start with the fact that there's only about three weeks to go. And that may stretch that a few days, but there's not a lot of time left in the year. So that's sort of number one. Number two is usually Congress somehow manages to do extenders. It's never quite clear that it's going to happen, but it usually does. There are 40 or so out there that the ordinary tax preferences that get extended year by year, they're not typically very expensive. A lot of people like them and they get dumped on the year end bill and get done without any kind of revenue offset as well. Because when you're doing it at the last minute, you can kind of use that as an excuse. The thing that's different this time around, I think, that complicates things is that there are some controversial issues. Boss of mine, former assistant secretary for tax policy, used to say support for extenders is a mile wide and an inch deep. That still holds. What we've got is some added things this time around that are going to complicate it. And that's the TCJA changes left over from 2017, the 174 expensing, the 163J ramp up in the limit on the interest deduction and the beginning of the phase down of bonus depreciation. Those are big items, not the little items. And against that, you have balanced the expiration at the end of last year of the expanded refundable child credit that the Democrats like on the low-income individual side. They're going to have to work that out, how they're going to do all this. This really raises the profile 
of the extenders this time around. And then finally, camp complicating all this, they've got a lot of other things on the agenda that they've got to do. They're working on a December 16 deadline for annual appropriations. We're running on a continuing resolution that's just continuing since October 1st, the budget from last year. There may be some reluctance among some of the Republicans, especially in the House, to make final decisions about appropriations when they're about to take control of the House. That complicates things. And then there are all sorts of things they want to add to it, like the extenders, but also debt ceiling is something that they want to try to fix, some of the Democrats do at least, so they don't have to contend with that next year. We've got the National Defense Authorization Act that's got to be done so we can figure out how we're spending money on the military. The marriage equality bill is out there. The Democrats have promised to pass that before they leave for the year. The Electoral Count Act is out there. It's sort of memorializing in statutory language the DACA program for young immigrants. There's a retirement savings bill that they want to try to do, probably try to add that to the year-end legislation. They've got to fix the Medicare reimbursement rates, which get changed dramatically unless they do something about it. And then they've promised Joe Manchin, did the Democrats have, to do something about regulatory reform for energy infrastructure, something they promised to get his vote on the IRA. So they got a ton of stuff they've got to do, a lot of which takes priority over extenders, which support is sort of an inch deep. So, you know, all that really complicates things tremendously. I still think more likely than not gets done anyway. Somehow they managed to do these things, but it's not with the same degree of confidence I would usually have. Of those three things, the calendar is not their friend. We've got controversy over balancing corporate tax cuts and individual tax cuts, things from the TCJA, which have a certain stigma with the Democrats relative to things like child tax credit that are very expensive and Republicans are perhaps reluctant to do. And then finally, the very crowded agenda, all those things together prevent you from having the level of conviction that you might otherwise have that, well, it's the end of the year deal, they'll just do extenders. And by the way, some of these things are big. They're not just the regular group of extenders that we've seen over and over and over. Some of these are case of first impression, like the TCJA items, the new expanded child tax credit, all valid points. And I agree with you. It makes it hard to say, absolutely, they're going to get it done. But okay, Jen, convince us the other way then. What are three good reasons that they will do it? Nevertheless, because they do it every time. I typically expect for individuals and entities to behave in a manner similar to the way they've behaved over the last few decades. And I don't think this year is any different. The calendar is never their friend. Congress is always hitting up against deadlines, rushing to hit deadlines. I don't think this year's any different. December 16th, that's not a lot of time, but these things come together pretty quickly. They always say that everyone starts smelling those jet fumes and folks on the Hill want to go home. They want to go home to their districts. They want to go home to their states. They have to fund the federal government. I don't think that there's any desire to have a government shutdown. So I think it's that. There are always bumps along the road, but they more often than not do hit a deal. I just expect them to do what they have done historically. Another one is usually when you see these outliers where they go home over the holidays and they come back next year, they punt it into the next Congress. It's when one party thinks they can get a better deal next year. And that's just not the case right now. I don't think that either party thinks that they can take their toys and go home, come back another day and get a better deal in the new Congress. 
I think that there's going to be a desire to try to get things done before the new Congress when House Democrats, even though with the skinny majorities, I think that they're going to want to try to get some priorities in before the end of the year. And another one is there are a significant number of members that are retiring that are going to want some legacy projects in, they're going to want some legacy bills in a year-end deal. And they don't have the luxury to wait till next year for a better deal. So I think that either retirements or folks that lost their elections during the midterms are going to want to see some priorities accomplished by the end of the year before they go home or even before you go into the minority, especially in the House. Being in the minority, it's vastly different. It doesn't matter how skinny the margins are. This is really your one shot to cash in your chips before heading into the minority during the next Congress. So, And with respect to the revenue, I agree that revenue has been a concern in the past, but the year-end deals, it's an afterthought. Only opposition or someone trying to angle for something in the bill raises revenue concerns. At the end of 2019, we saw a big extenders package. It was almost $400 billion. Does anyone remember the name of that bill on the tip of their tongue? I don't. It was an end of the year package and included a boatload of extenders. It was $370 billion and no one raised any concerns about the budget or the size of the extenders or the policy modifications that were being made. And that's kind of usually the way it ultimately um, hashes out. So I think that was three, maybe more. Why should we think that they would do it? Because they always do. And we should expect them to behave as they always do. As you said, we've seen them get to these year-end deals before where it doesn't look like they're going to put it together. And not only did they put together a modest bill, they put together these blowout spending bills and nobody bats an eye. So that's one. The valid point that nobody's likely to get a better deal next year, for example, are House Democrats really going to get a better deal on the child tax credit next year than they would get this year? Probably not. And then finally, with those retiring members, either they want legacy legislation like we've seen with things like Secure 2.0 and those sort of things, or the retirement legislation, or they just don't care as much, right? There's no need to draw the hard lines in the sand because, well, they're leaving. And we often see that with retiring members. So all valid points, Jen. That's why I think most of us are at the, yeah, they'll get it done, even if we can't say they'll definitely get it done because there's many ways they could still fail. All right, well, let's then ask a different question. So, Tom, you rattled off a bunch of things that are on the agenda. Between just straight extenders, so when we say extenders, we're talking about only changing the date in legislation, right? Anything else we would call a policy change, which is often frowned upon in an extenders deal. Sorry, date changes only, can't do any policy changes. But if we do get a bill and things start to pile up, do you think we could get any policy changes this December? Well, certainly nothing on the order of the Build Back Better Act, like rate changes in, in international reform. The Democrats haven't suddenly grown those extremely narrow majorities that prevented them from doing that, even under budget reconciliation, where they didn't need to get 60 votes in the Senate. And they don't have, realistically, don't have time to do budget reconciliation in the three or four weeks that's left. What they're left with is trying to get 60 votes in the Senate, which rules all that stuff out. There's some smaller stuff that I guess you would call policy change. They do have retirement savings bill out there, two bills actually, the SECURE Act in the House and the EARN Act in the Senate that liberalizes some of the, the rules around retirement accounts. And you could call, I suppose, some of those TCJA changes potentially policy changes because even though they're just changing the effective date for something like 163J or 174 or bonus depreciation, 
those things could be turning into more permanent changes, things that get extended year by year, the way the old research credit used to be a year by year thing until they finally made it permanent. So maybe a little bit around that. A couple of other things we've heard rumblings about. I think this is definitely on the fringe of the negotiations, but just something that we've heard about. One is that car dealers are asking for LIFO relief because their inventories are so low, historically low almost, that they've been eating into their LIFO layers, which is having them pay substantially more tax. Some are asking for relief on that. They say it's related to supply chain issues so that they should get some relief there. Don't know. Certainly not going to be a driver. The question is, if you had the train leaving the station, could it jump on? Other things we've heard about is potential relief on some of the IRA provisions that will take effect on January 1st. Everything from some of the standards inside some of the energy credits, like the vehicle credit or the domestic content standard or some of the other energy credits, all the way to even straight up delay of things like the book minimum tax. But to be clear, I'm not saying that's likely. I'm just saying that those are things that people are going to ask for. So there will be other policy changes floating around at the periphery of a deal. It'd be interesting to see if those get in there, then you know we had a big bill, right? Because these are things that are very clearly policy changes and everything pretty much got in at that point. Jen, let me ask you a question. You sort of hit on this, right? We spent so much of 2021, 2022, saying we had to pay for Build Back Better, what eventually became the Inflation Reduction Act. Joe Manchin's argument was we have to pay for every penny that we spend, plus some to do deficit reduction. And it's the, really the only way to fight inflation, right? And that's why the Inflation Reduction Act looked the way it did. We got the book minimum tax. We got the stock buyback excise tax. We've got the loss limitation and so on to pay for it. Even the IRS funding, arguably, was part of that. But you said earlier, if we do a year-end tax bill, they never pay for these. So am I to understand that they would pass billions, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars of tax cuts unpaid for just a few months after all this argument about paying for the Inflation Reduction Act? And if that's true, whatever happened to uh, the concerns over inflation? How do all those pieces fit together? Funny how that happens. When you're the one doing the spending, you don't worry about the consequences of the spending. I think it's the bipartisanship. When you have this bipartisan agreement, there's less of an inclination to attack the potential ramifications of the legislation. And I don't think this is any different. Again, in 2019, at the end of the year, no one said anything about the costs associated with extenders. But there is a policy rationale for that. This isn't just kind of runaway spending, at least not in the tax space. I can defend extender spending as not being inflationary because it's really an extension of the current policy baseline that's already kind of baked in. It's not making inflation worse. At least that's the theory where you can kind of rationalize extending the current policy baseline. It's already baked in and it's not going to make new spending, new dollars going out the door. I think that's how you rationalize it, at least on the tax front. I can't speak to whatever else could hitch a ride on that train, but extenders and everyone has a special place in their heart for extenders. So. <laughs> everyone? I don't know. Well, it'll be interesting to I see. Do. <laughs> I do. I know you do, Jen. I, so do I. Years after year of doing them, fond memories. To your point, though, I mean, it'll be really interesting, I think, to see if people like Joe Manchin or others whose votes are going to be necessary to get this through the Senate, right? The Senate's going to need 60. That's not necessarily a slam dunk. Will he object? to these being unpaid for. And if he insists on that, then it could very well die. I guess that would be another reason, Tom, for you to be a negative, right? If, if they insist on paying for this, you know you're not gonna get 60, and that could basically tank a deal. Okay, so for both of you, one last question. We've danced all around it, we've sort of hinted at it. So for those listening, each of you, Tom, you go first. 
your thoughts with all the likely reasons and all the not likely reasons. What do you think? Do you think we get a year-end deal on taxes or no? Overall, you, you add all this up. Somehow, I think they'll probably get there, but it's more like a 60-40 proposition than the usual 80-20 or 90-10. It's more problematic this time. They've got a hill to climb and like they're climbing it on roller skates. So it's <laughs> more difficult than usual. So I'm, I'm a little more dubious about it. But as Jen says, historically, they somehow managed to get it done. It's never clear quite how they do it. But at the end of the year, when they see everything closing down and this is their last chance, they throw it on the pile and get it done somehow. Okay. What about you, Jen? You agree? I 100% agree. I agree with Tom. Failure is always an option with these bills, but they do manage to come together. And I think it's that pressure. They have time pressure. They need to keep the government open and they want to go home. They want to go home for the holidays. So you're 100% at 60%? Yeah, I'm 100% in 60-40. Okay, well, thank you, guys. That's all we have time for today. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Tom. In closing, how about a topic that we didn't quite discuss today? And you might be wondering this. If they don't get tax extenders done this December, then what? That's a good question, because you see, it's not so easy as just saying, well, that next Congress, they'll come back in January and get right on the tax extenders task. In fact, I think that's kind of unlikely. Now listen, an important piece of information here is going to be knowing for how long Congress will fund the government into 2023. If they fund the government only to say February, for example, then maybe they do come back, hash out another funding deal and do tax extenders then. But what if they fund the government through the end of the fiscal year, September 30th, or God forbid through the end of the calendar year of 2023? Well, I'm sure you'll agree that's a little worrisome because there may be no other obvious vehicle moving before then to handle tax extenders. And if you get that deep into 2023, into the fall or late into December, restoring, for example, the RE expensing rule all the way back to January 1 of 2022 suddenly doesn't feel like quite the slam dunk that it would this December. So I think tax extenders last best chance for a while anyway, is this December. After that, the prospects get a little bit hazy. Congress, I hope, is self-aware enough to know this, and perhaps that puts a little bit more oomph behind a December deal. In parting, just wanted to wish you all the very best of Thanksgivings. To all of you who regularly listen, who offer your ideas and your counterpoints to something we've said, you've helped make this podcast better. I hope you'll continue to do so, and I'm thankful for you. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.